0: Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this time of year where we get to reflect on so much of your goodness to us. You have done a great work. And God, as we and so many other churches that are, that are Southern Baptist, especially focus on international missions this month, and as we take up this offering next week, we just ask for your blessing. 2020 has been a challenging year in so many ways, but we know that you love to work through the hard stuff, and we know there's silver lining, and we ask that at least a piece of that would be that the gospel would continue to go forth. And so raise up our heads, help us to think outside of our little little lives, our little kingdoms of comfort, and let's pray and let's give toward the gospel going to the nation. So I pray for this particular church next week that we would have a strong offering and that many, many churches across the nation, indeed the world would as well. And we pray for the missionaries, some 3,500 or whatever it is exactly now, many of whom are home due to COVID, that you would get them back soon. You would sustain them. May they be filled up and encouraged and go back. And I pray that now you're working in the hearts of many, 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 many peoples across the world and that missionaries would return to full-time work and reap a harvest. Would you save many? Pray for our our gathering, the ladies' gathering on Tuesday, that it would be a great time of blessing and encouragement, that the church would continually just be built up and edified, fun would be had, and money would be given for the sake of missions. Pray for those who are sick among us, that you would bring healing. I want to pray particularly for Louise Whalen, who's had a rough couple of weeks, rough month in some ways, that you would heal her, uh, restore her health. Uh, Give doctors wisdom that she might be able to function well. I'm thankful for her faith and, and her encouragement. And I pray that you would continue to help her to be encouraged by the gospel. Help her to look to you. God, you have spoken. The grass withers and the flower fade, but your word will endure forever. Would you be pleased to... Work through it yet again this morning. We pray it in Christ's name, Amen. Well, it's a rare Sunday at Southside because we're starting a new series. Uh, what we do if you're new is we tend to jump into a book of the Bible and we stay quite a while normally. So it doesn't feel like we start new series very often. One of our core values as a church is that we are ruled by God's word, and that verb "ruled" is intentionally strong. We want God to set the agenda for His church, and the main way that happens is by this book setting the agenda on Sunday mornings. So whatever he's spoken, that's what we have, even in cases like today when it's a list of names. So God sets the agenda through his book. We are ruled by the word. And so we're starting the Gospel of Matthew. You can go ahead and turn there. If you have a Bible, first book in the New Testament. And we'll be here a little while. Uh, Contrary to all the advice, uh, church growth gurus that are constantly telling pastors how to grow a big church, one of the rules is people no longer have attention spans like they used to. And so you can't do these long series and you can't expect much from the people. You can go four weeks, six weeks max. You can never do something like spend two and a half years in the book of Matthew. Well, you break the mold. So we're diving in. And it's going to be awesome. The Gospel of Matthew is an awesome book. Let me encourage you to be reading ahead and rereading and reading and rereading. This Gospel was a favorite of the early church. The first Christians loved this book. It was the most read, the most copied, the most quoted, and the most preached book of the early centuries of the church. And Matthew is about the Gospel of the Kingdom. It's about God taking hold of his world through his king, much like we saw in Psalm chapter 2. It's the story of how the story, and when I say story, I mean capital S story, the true story. This story that Matthew's going to give us of Jesus fulfills the ancient story of Israel. And so what we're going to do together, we're going to learn a whole lot of Old Testament together because Matthew is going to show us that it was all pointing towards him. Who we are as a church, our identity, and our Jewish heritage. Here's how one scholar puts it. He says that the purpose of Matthew, this gospel, is to draw out the manifold ways in which the story of Jesus of Nazareth brought the long and prophecy-laden story of Israel to its God-ordained goal. In fact, Matthew says in chapter 13 that every scribe who's been trained in the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And Matthew shows himself a trained scribe, showing the old and the new and the new and the old. The United Bible Society, the UBS, it lists 54 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. 54 direct quotations and 262 allusions to the Old Testament passages. So it is just laced. It is just sopping with Old Testaments. We're going to see again and again and again. Matthew is banging this drum that Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament. This phrase that the scriptures might be fulfilled happened 16 times in Matthew's gospel. So what he wants to show us that is the coming of Jesus, all of God's purposes for his people declared and illustrated all throughout the Hebrew scriptures are coming to their destined fulfillment in the Messiah. We'll see that week after week after week. So this is important. First book of the New Testament. How does Matthew start the New Testament? With a list of names. With a genealogy. Most of us aren't interested in a list of names, right? This is typically the type of Bible section that we just skip over in our Bible reading plan. Okay, a bunch of names, where does the good stuff start? But God loves lists. These things are everywhere. We just treat these, you know, we pass them and don't think there's much there for us. Don't see the relevance. We treat them, you know, like apples, terms, and conditions. Just scroll to the bottom, click I agree, don't think about them again. But there's actually a revival, of interest. Maybe not a revival, maybe it's always been there and I'm just getting older, but seems like there's a revival of interest in genealogies, people interested in their roots. Maybe some of you are part of the West Texas Genealogical Society. But if we're honest, most of us don't care that much about other people's genealogies, right? Your neighbor comes over, man, I've just discovered all kinds of genealogical nuggets. You want to come learn about my family tree? Most of us aren't going to get excited about that. Most of us aren't going to go pop popcorn and skip over to our neighbor's house. Most of us are probably going to fake cough like we got the COVID. (laughs) But I hope to show you this morning that this list of names ought to be of special interest to you. This list of names ought to excite you. Seems strange, seems irrelevant at first, but God has a word for us this morning. One of the things we've got to realize is that genealogies were much more important to Jewish people than they are to us. History mattered. And so Matthew's starting his gospel by hooking his plot onto the Old Testament. This genealogy, these names, this historical anchorage is a bridge connecting the Old Testament to the New Testaments. Again, here's how another commentator puts it. He says, this genealogy shows how Matthew read his Old Testament. Christocentrically, don't you love that word, Christ-centered, Christocentrically, messianically. For Matthew, it is clear, and this may be the deepest point of the genealogy, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is trying to say, end quote. So here, the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, he he is rolling out the red carpet. He's laying out here this hope-filled drum roll for the king who came in a manger. And it's fundamentally about hope. Hope first for the nations. And that's you because none of us here are Jews. Very few, if any, are Jewish people. Nations are non-Gentiles. Hope for the nations. Hope for sinners. And hope for a kingdom. So first, hope for the nations. Look there again at Matthew 1.1. The book... Of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Eight words in the original, and every one of these words is filled with meaning. God wants us to see that in the coming of this king, he's bringing the history of God's people to a climax. This was where it was all headed. The book of the genealogy, the original is, is Biblos geneseos. And we don't, that means nothing to us. was Greek to me. But to them, it would have meant something, especially those who knew the Greek Old Testament, because it means the book of Genesis, the book of origins, not of the old creation, but of the new creation. He wants us to see here that the deepest meaning in history is not actually the birth of the world, but the birth of this Messiah. In the old creation, the old Genesis, God's creating. But here in the new Genesis, God is recreating the world. The Gospel of Matthew is the book of the new Genesis, the new creation inaugurated by Jesus the King. And notice where he starts right there in verse 1, but then he says it again in verse 2. Abraham, he starts with Abraham. And Abraham obviously is hugely important. Remember the story, God calls him out, and in Genesis 12, he makes some some of the grandest promises in all of the Bible. He's going to bless Abraham and his family, and through his family, through a descendant of his, he's going to bless the whole world. He chooses a family and says, through you, the whole world will end up being blessed. Incredible promise. Listen to Genesis 22. And he tells Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth Be blessed. Incredible. God's plan is to rescue the world through the offspring of Abraham. And here Matthew's telling us Jesus is that son of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations. All nations. Again, that's us. This, this gospel is really bookended by the universal scope of the, of the reign of Jesus Christ. Right here in the beginning, he's telling us who this Messiah is. He's the son of Abraham in whom all the nations, panta ta ethne, will be blessed. You know how he ends the book, right? We call it the Great Commission. And where Jesus, this son of David and son of Abraham, commands and commissions his church to go and make disciples of whom? Ponta ta ethne. All the nations. So this inclusion here of Abraham is hugely important for the blessing of the nations. But also notice that there are nations, there are Gentiles in this Jewish genealogy. Now what's the point of a Jewish genealogy? It's to show that it's purely Jewish. Remember the, the Jewish mindset of Jesus' day? It was, a really, it was a really wicked generation. We see that again and again and again from Scripture. And even from history, Josephus, who was a non-Christian Jewish historian, says it was the wickedest people that ever lived. One of their main problems was that they had become extremely ethnocentric and judgmental. Maybe you remember the start of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4. He comes in and he opens the scroll and he, he points to just a couple times where God had shown grace to Gentiles in need rather than Jews. And do you remember how his people responded, the Jewish people, to this guy who opened up the the Bible? (laughs) They tried to throw him off a cliff. They called Gentiles dogs. And that didn't mean what it means today. It was a very pejorative term in that day. There was this prayer that was very common that Jewish men would pray daily. God, thank you, Lord, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave, for not having made me a woman, and for not having made me a Gentile. But here, in the family line of the Jewish king, we have Gentiles. Gentile women, in fact. Ruth was a Moabite. Rahab was a Canaanite. In fact, when you read Ruth, you see that again and again. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, really wants us to know where she comes from five times. Listen to what Deuteronomy 23 says about Moabites. The law says no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Remember where the Moabites came from? The Moabites were the result of Lot's drunken incest. And here we have a Moabite in the family record of Jesus. Then we have Bathsheba. Probably a Hittite, certainly married to a Hittite. And we've got to understand this would have knocked a first century Jew off his chair. But God wants to show that in Jesus, in Israel's king, in his very body flow the blood of Canaanites and Moabites and Hittites. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations. He's the king of Israel and he's the king of the world. And so there's hope for the nations in this family record. And again, that means hope for us. Most of us, very few of us will be Jewish by, by descent. We often take that for granted that you and I are here, Gentiles, praising the God of Israel and Israel's king who's forgiven our sins. We ought to be so grateful that we have been included, right? Because listen to the way we were, Ephesians puts it. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. They weren't for us. We were without hope. Talking about hope for the nations before. We were without hope. We were without God. All theos. But in Christ, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of Jesus, there's hope for all. Hope for the nations. But it gets even better. Because of Jesus, there's hope for sinners. We're already seeing here, this is not your typical Jewish genealogy. First off as I mentioned most most ancient genealogies did not include the names of women. It would have been only Jewish men and it would have only been the ethnically pure Jewish men. And Matthew here gives us the names of five women. Four of which had acted in ways that were questionable to say the least. Let's just say they lacked sexual propriety. These are these women from those stories in the Bible that make you blush. These are those women from the stories in, in the Bible that usually don't make the cut for the children's Bibles. Women are included, and it's not the women you would expect. I mean, where, where are the Jewish matriarchs? Where's Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel? This thing has, it's got a triple scandal. we got Gentiles, women, and notorious sinners here. To have scandalous women and Gentiles in the royal ancestry of Israel's king would have been unheard of. Oftentimes, people would clean up these lists, right? We may even do it. You know, we've all got that one black family in the sheep that we kind of want to just—we're embarrassed to include. And if you're like, "No, we don't," you might be the person. Just saying, We'll, we'll clean up our own record. You know, so if maybe we we flunked out of our college first attempt, you know, we won't put that in our resume. You know, that was just a false start. Jesus here intentionally includes the black sheep. False starts are on display in the family line of Jesus. Let's take a look at a few of them. Let's just mention Abraham first. Well, we know Abraham is a man of faith, absolutely, but he was not a good man. There was nothing in Abraham that, that was attractive to God. Remember, he was, he was a pagan before God called him. Joshua 24.2 tells us that. He was an idolater. He worshipped the moon. God didn't pick Abraham because of anything in Abraham. It was just free and sovereign grace, and he redeems him, and he calls him, and he, and he gives him these promises, and you'd think he would live a really holy and righteous life after the grace that the one true God had shown him, but do you remember what he does? Remember what he does to his wife? He's heading into Egypt. He's got his, you know, he's got his wife. Says, Sarah, you know, you sure are good looking. Oh, thanks, babe. <laughs> well, because of that, I mean, these guys, these Egyptians, there's a lot of them, you know, they're probably going to take me out to get you. Let's just say you're my sister. Sarah goes along. God protects her, thankfully. A couple of years later, Abraham does the same thing. God protects Sarah. Abraham was a cowardly liar in that regard. You know, godly couples don't bring up the past. It's part of what forgiveness means. But you know, if in a weak moment, the Passover got brought up with Abraham and Sarah, Sarah won that one. You remember that time? Then there's Tamar, verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Maybe you remember the story of Tamar. Just nasty. She pretended to be a Canaanite prostitute and seduced her father-in-law, Judah. She makes the family record of Jesus. What about Rahab? There in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Rahab was from Jericho. She was a Canaanite prostitute. Tamar pretended to be. She was the real deal. Verse 5 also mentions Ruth. And Ruth, her scandal is a little less explicit, but let's just be honest. She was a little bit aggressive with Boaz, wasn't she? Naomi didn't help. Maybe she did help. Perfumed her up. Prettied her up. Wait till Boaz has had some some drink. When he's in bed, go slip in. David, verse 6. Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know what that's supposed to say? That's supposed to say David was the father of Solomon by the wife of David. It doesn't. It says by the wife of another man, Uriah, who in fact was a Hittite. And he doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name. I think he doesn't mention it on purpose because he wants to draw our attention to that story. Hopefully you know it, David and Bathsheba. David breaks four of the Ten Commandments in one episode. Lying, coveting, adultery, and murder. Then we have a son, Solomon. Solomon really was the anti-king. I mean, he he had some good days, but he was no hero. The law, Deuteronomy 17, actually laid out just a few commandments for kings. And it seems like Solomon went out to break every one of them. The king shall not acquire excessive gold. Solomon acquires a ton of it. In fact, you know how many talents he acquired of it? Six, six, six. The king shall not acquire a ton of horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. The king shall not acquire many wives, especially foreign wives, especially Egyptian. Solomon loved many foreign women. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Then we have the very author of this passage, Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. That may not mean much to us now, but we've got to realize in that day, the role of a tax collector, it was a Jewish person who turned on his own people and started working for the enemy, Rome. You think taxes are bad now? They were totally unregulated then, and the way that tax collectors, very wealthy people, the way they would make their money is they would charge over and above the taxes from their own people working for the enemy. Jewish people hated tax collectors. Here he is writing about the Jewish king. So much so, once once the uh, the, the the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, Judaism for all intents and purposes done. Can't You can't be Jewish with no temple. So they actually reshaped it and reformed it into rabbinic Judaism where they just focused on writings instead of worship and sacrifice and all that. And one of the most popular documents was a document called the Talmud. That Jewish central holy book actually encourages breaking the ninth commandment when it comes to tax collectors. It actually commends lying to tax collectors. And here is a former tax collector writing the biography of Jesus. Hope for sinners. Because Jesus' pedigree here is is shady. It's a motley crew. And so how should this give us hope this morning? 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus saves sinners like you and like me. Martin Luther put it this way. Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. This is why he came. So we're going to see next week. Look at chapter one, verse 21. Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the word Jesus means. It was actually a very popular name in the first century. Yeshua in Hebrew, it means Yahweh is salvation in Hebrew. Joshua, Yahweh is salvation. That's what makes Christmas good news. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the needy. He didn't come to justify the godly. You know why? There are none. He came to justify the ungodly. Jesus, the Messiah, is the friend of sinners. He didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. And the truth out of it is, there are none righteous. There are none good, Romans 3, 9 and 10. What well, we have to do, friends, we have to come to a place where we see ourselves as sinners. Jesus Christ really has nothing for us until we get there. The deepest distinction between mankind is not between the good guys and the bad guys. The deepest distinction between mankind is the bad guys who know they're bad and those who don't know that they're bad. I love the old hymn, Come Ye Sinners. The whole hymn's an invitation to come to Christ. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, sick and wounded by the fall. And there's this line in there that says it's an invitation Don't let conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. And it's not this idea of physical fitness, it's spiritual fitness. You know, because the mindset's often, you know, I'll come to God, I'll I'll come to Christ, I'll get serious about my faith. I just need to fix this part of my life. I need to get my life in order. That was actually my testimony. I was a freshman in college and I didn't know any better. I didn't know the gospel and I thought I need to clean up my act so that I can go to wherever I wanted to be. I need to clean up my act. Therefore, let me go to church as part of it. And I heard the gospel and realized I didn't need a makeover. I needed heart surgery. He's not asking us to clean up our acts. Don't dream of fitness. It'll never happen. You'll never get there. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Are you there this morning? Contrition, brokenness, a penitent spirit. In fact, one author provocatively puts it this way. Penitent hookers enter heaven ahead of smug virgins. We must feel our need of him. No smugness will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't call us to get our act together first. All we need is to need Him, the one qualification for the kingdom is to realize that you don't qualify. And the only thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. The last will be first in God's economy. The one thing to offer is the single acknowledgement, I have nothing to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That gives us sinner hope. Hope for us who know we fall short. Hope for our friends. Hope for our family. Jesus saves sinners. He saves the messed up. That's why he came. Merry Christmas. If you think you're too far gone, you think, you know what, I've done too much. God couldn't forgive me. Look again at this genealogy. Your background doesn't matter. Both Prostitutes and princes are on level playing field here. Sinners in need of grace. And that grace is stronger than your sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all my sin. Richard Sibbs put it this way. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. God saves sinners and God uses sinners. Just look here. God uses messy people. He uses the messiness of Rahab and Tamar and David to accomplish his plans. Loves to use dysfunctional families to bring about glory for his name. And, you know, we don't even know several of these names. Several of these names actually aren't even listed in the Old Testament. That should encourage us. God uses the obscure and the big names. Both are vital to the accomplishment of his purposes. And he delights to use both. You know why? It makes him look better when he uses the obscure and the nameless. That's why 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says God stores his treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in clay jars. One of the cheapest ways you could transport anything. So that. It might be clear to all that the power belongs to him and not to us. Hope for sinners and third hope for a kingdom. You notice this emphasis on David. You just see it a lot. David, David, David. This Messiah is the son of David. He's He's the son of Abraham, son of David. And remember why this is a big deal, these promises to David that find all over the Old Testament, but most pointedly in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that he would have a descendant. Everybody thought it would be Solomon, realize it wasn't Solomon. He would have a descendant who would rule and whose kingdom would last forever and ever and ever. A forever king is what God promised David. And you look at David's line, starting with Solomon, when is the, when is the king coming? Because this one was cut short and this one was chopped off because of sin again and again and again. And that's when we have the prophets come in and saying, David's coming. Long after David is dead, the prophets are saying, David's coming. David's coming. Listen to Isaiah, the way he puts it in chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God made promises to David. Doesn't matter how bleak it looks, he will make good on those promises. That whole tree was chopped down, but you know what? There was a stump left. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's daddy. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. God did not forget his promise to David. He doesn't forget any promise. Look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, that's the exile of God's people, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Here we have Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus. But what's up with the number 14 here? Well, in Hebrew, unlike English, the letters also represent numbers. And they wouldn't count the vowels, and so David's name would be D-V-D. And numerically, that is 4-6-4. Four, four, 14. David's name here is 14 on the list. Jesus is the son of... Of David, and so Matthew here strategically lists this genealogy into three groups of fourteen names. David, Jesus is the king, or another way to look at it is is six groups of seven names. Seven, of course, being a, a strong biblical number, a powerful symbol of perfection all over Scripture. But there's only six sevens. Why not seven sevens? Wouldn't that be perfect? Well, Jesus is the seventh seven. Jesus is the Jubilee in person. Jesus is the one who brings freedom in the dawning of the new age. Jesus is the one who's bringing the end of exile. Remember, one way to summarize the big picture of the scriptures is creation, sin, exile, restoration. Restoration. Creation sin, and then because of sin, God's people are exiled for most of their history. That's why this is such good news. The people are in waiting. God had made all these promises. Why is there not a king on the throne? This Herod guy's a fake. He's not the one. We're not reigning, we're being reigned over. Rome has their thumb on us. When is God going to make good on his promises? When is God going to bring the end to the exile? That's what Jesus came to do restore us an end. The exile. That's why we sing at this time of year, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Jesus is the Son of David. It's another way of saying he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed king. He's the deliverer. He's the rememberer. He's the redeemer. Remember, Christ isn't his last name. He did not have Christ on his mailbox. Not on his driver's license. His parents weren't Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a title. Every time you see Jesus Christ, you ought to translate that in your mind. King Jesus. It's not a last name. It's a title. It's more of a job description than it is a last name. It's what he came to do. He's the deliverer of Israel. He's the deliverer of his people. The long-awaited redeemer. Son of David. Son of Abraham. The Messiah. The king who brings blessing to the nations. The forever king for all people if... You will trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn from your sins and turn to him and be restored. Matthew ties so much of the Old Testament together here, even in that first verse. And a lot of places actually do this. One of my favorites is Psalm 72. So it's a psalm about the king, and he ties together these same promises. Remember, Abraham was promised a great name, and he was promised that all the nations would be blessed in him. Remember what David was promised, a kingdom, a son who would have a kingdom that would never end. Notice the way the psalmist puts them together in Psalm 72, 17. It says this about the coming Davidic king, the coming Christos. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, Genesis 12. All nations call him blessed, Genesis 18. Son of David, son of Abraham. The Holy Spirit through Matthew here is tying so much of the Old Testament together in verse 1. So this should give us hope. For a number of reasons, this list of names should give us hope to point us to the God who keeps his promises. We've all experienced broken promises, right? in a host of ways. And you know what? We will continue to experience broken promises, whether it be divorce or relationships or the workplace, family. But church, God doesn't break his promises. He can be relied upon. You can take it to the bank. In fact, all the promises that we see that he kept right here is a guarantee. He's kept his promises about the first coming. He'll keep his promises about the second coming. That's what makes Christian hope distinct from all other kinds of hope. You know, there really is no hope for anyone outside of the Christian faith. It's a good way to talk to your unbelieving friends, especially when they start talking about, I hope. Yeah, what's your basis for that hope? Or why do you hope that? You know what? We're the only ones that have a basis, an objective outside basis for hope. Every other version of hope actually is just filled with doubt. I hope I get the job. I hope it works out. Not so Christian hope. Christian hope will not disappoint. Because the son of David and son of Abraham has come. And he is bringing about the blessing of Abraham to the nations. Which is why you and I are here. Because God made those promises way back in Genesis 12. And it's all past tense for us. We get to look back at all the myriad ways God's been faithful. In the word and in history. He's been faithful in the word. He's been faithful in history. He will be faithful in your life. He has fulfilled the promise to Abraham and to David. He's died and he's been raised. And so our hope stands firm on the basis of what God has done in the past. When in doubt, where do you look? You don't look here. You look here. You look up. God has kept his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. He has sovereignly worked out his purposes, even through all sorts of mess. Son of Abraham, son of David, that's who Jesus is. Son of David, Israel, here's your king. Son of Abraham, nations, here is your hope forever and for everyone who will turn from their sin and trust the king. This is the genealogy of King Jesus. He is bringing blessing to the nations and his kingdom will not end. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you are a God who cares about history and you work through history. You're not asking us to some blind faith, but you have given us dates and people and places. And you care about the fact that you have worked in history and you made promises in history and you've kept them and we're so privileged to live on this side of so much of your revelation and look back at all of your goodness and faithfulness and may it encourage us in the right sense of that word. May it give us boldness to live all out, sold out for your glory. Help us, God, to get out of our passivity and just going with emotions and live for you. May this list of names light us up. May we not leave here the same because of who this Jesus is and all we find hope we find hope as gentiles god we confess the fact that we don't deserve to be here worshiping you would you give us grateful hearts in that we're gentiles who've been included in the covenants of promises who've been brought near by the blood of christ and we're thankful as sinners we all fall short in so many ways and we're so thankful that we see again and again this king who's not harsh Doesn't treat us as some redheaded stepchild, but a king who is a friend of sinners, who is gentle and lowly and welcoming and delights to see people broken so that he might restore them. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you that today, this moment, and every day of our lives, there is always more mercy in Christ than sin in us. We pray it in his name. Amen.